This morning's sermon text is from John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died for you, or Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When Jesus had said this, or when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Thank you. Well, we are embarking on a sermon series this fall called Doubt. And uh, really, really glad that you're joining us. If you are new to Central and even here because we're exploring some of these topics that, that are common to many that cause doubts of faith outside of the church, kind of barriers to faith, or even those niggling doubts within the church that, that stick, we are looking at a number of them this fall and just tackling them one at a time or, or doing our best to merely address them um, with a certain level, level of... Um, yeah, depth that, that you can kind of access and then go on from there. So we're really glad you're here. Um, we gave out study guides last week in our kickoff. There's a bunch of them around the building as well. Encourage you to grab one. If you don't have it, keep it. Bring it with you on Sundays. There's space to take notes if you'd like. There's also um, readings you can do in the week leading up to every text so that you've kind of immersed yourself in the scriptures a bit on a common theme that you'll be hearing about on a Sunday. So utilize that. Make the most of it. And um, this morning, here we go. Uh, this morning, we are talking about the consistently biggest doubt and barrier to faith that there is. Over and over again, this, this tops the list. The loss of loved ones, broken families, rape, murder, terrorism, racism, depression and suicide, poverty, and starvation. How is it possible that as we observe and experience evil and suffering in the world to not only claim that there's a God, but that he is good? Therein lies the challenge. 
18th century Scottish philosopher, David Hume, famously put it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil, evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able to but not willing? Then he, he is malevolent. Is he both able and, and willing? Why then is there evil? Put more simply, terrible stuff happens in the world. So either God is all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible can't exist. So while, while some of what I preach this morning it will certainly have a philosophical feel to it, uh, tone to it, that in itself wouldn't be sufficient for the subject matter this morning because this isn't merely something we intellectually think about. This is something we feel, right? So, so we'll talk philosophically a little bit this morning. Um, I will talk to the mind, but the goal is also to speak to your heart because this is an emotional issue for us. This is not simply intellectual. But we are going to let this text in John chapter 11 kind of govern where we go this morning. And so if you're the type that, like if you're the type that likes outlines, here it is. When Jesus doesn't come. Second, when Jesus comes. And third, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's start with when Jesus doesn't come. Our text begins by telling us that Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick, but great news. This family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they know this guy named Jesus. They're friends with Jesus, and he's a healer. He's a miracle worker. So this is great. And even in verse 5, it tells us that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus even better. They know Jesus. Jesus can heal. Jesus even loves this family. But then, surprisingly, it says next, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You ever call out to Jesus and he doesn't answer? You ever cry out for Jesus and he doesn't come? He could have, but he didn't. What does that mean? It, it feels in those moments like Jesus does not care. That he doesn't love them, but the text tells us that he does love them. That there's nothing he can do but you heard, it, you heard the reading. The text will prove the opposite. But we're familiar with what's happening for Mary and Martha at this point, aren't we? Something is going very wrong. And we truly believe that Jesus has the power to change the situation and that he loves us enough to do so. So when he doesn't, when he doesn't do what we ask or expect, we're not only puzzled, we're hurt. We're confused. 
Was it unloving of Jesus to wait two more days, I guess is the question. It would have felt that way to Mary and Martha, yes. It would have felt like betrayal. Your feelings, and I've had these feelings, would be telling you, see, Jesus doesn't love you. He won't come because he doesn't care. He won't come because he doesn't exist. He won't come because he can't do anything. But this story is here in our Bibles to teach us otherwise. See, Jesus gives a reason to his disciples in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So here's what Jesus is saying. Nothing is without purpose. Nothing. Sorrow, sickness, death, nothing happens to you that God doesn't permit for a reason. You will not encounter any situation in life which God cannot be glorified in. A terrible boss. Right, Tyson? Okay. A challenging marriage, right, Emily? Okay. <laughs> Crushing debt, a dysfunctional family, heartbreak and loss. Listen, God can be glorified in all of those situations. But this idea of God's glory being over everything troubles us. See, this flies in the face of a premise we typically live by, that if God exists, then God's goal is for, human in, for human life is happiness in the world. If God exists, his goal for us is happiness in this world. I think that's the kind of baseline. If there's a God, he wants me happy. And everything else any other answer would be troubling to us. Well, the Christian view is that the chief end of humanity is not happiness in this world, but the glory of God, which will ultimately bring true and eternal human fulfillment. See, many evils occur that seem utterly pointless with respect to the goal of happiness in this world, but they may not be unjustified with respect to producing the knowledge of God. So if we get the premise wrong, we're always going to get the answer wrong. The Bible tells us that God's glory is the ultimate premise. Therefore, there may be situations where there is suffering that may be a justification for all that takes place. See, as followers of Jesus, we need to continue to learn to ask of any and every situation, not so much, what's the quickest way out of this, so much as, how can I glorify God in this? But we can feel like God doesn't care about us only his glory, if we start to think about that. Well, if God cares about his glory, then he doesn't seem to really care about us, but we need to not pit those two things against each other. The text tells us that Jesus stayed for two reasons, the glory of God and his love for this family. And not only that, God's glory is primarily displayed in his love for his people. The glory of God and love of God are not opposites, they're not enemies, they're often synonymous. 
I love verse 11. Jesus tells his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, his disciples are pretty confused by this because they were just in Jerusalem and the religious leaders wanted to stone Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. So they retreated from the city and now Jesus is like, Lazarus is sleeping. I'm gonna go wake him up. And they're like, if he's napping, Jesus, like let him rouse himself from that nap. Like you, you could, we could all die. Why would we go? But I love that Jesus is like, he's asleep. They're like, well, let's not go then. He's like, I'm talking about death. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. That's different. But why does Jesus call death sleep? That's how Jesus likes to refer to death, sleep. Because he's showing them a totally different perspective on death than theirs. They fear death. They see death as something that wins out. To Jesus, death is no worse than sleep. Jesus doesn't wait because he doesn't care about Lazarus. He waits because death is powerless before him. At the end of our text, Jesus is going to call out, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, in burial clothes, just like walks out. In other words, it's easier for Jesus to raise a dead man than it is for me to get my kids up in the morning. Like, I'll walk into the room and I'll be like, Walker, get up, buddy. Uh, just rolls. Lights on, right? Just, ah, buries his head under a pillow. You do the old covers, like, right, really fast. And they're just there in their underwear. Like, Either way, it's just like, it's just process. It's this long process. It's hard to get your kids up from sleeping. Jesus goes to a dead man's tomb and says, come on out. And he comes right out. Jesus has reasons to allow Lazarus to die that his sisters and disciples could not see. The sisters are close to it. They can't see the reason. The disciples are close to Jesus. They cannot see the reason. This is critical. Just because we cannot see a reason for any given experience of suffering doesn't mean there cannot be one. This is, this is called logical fallacy. We assume, I don't see a reason, therefore there isn't one. That, that doesn't hold water. Philosopher J.L. Mackey posed his case against God that way in a book he wrote in the 80s. He put it like this, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. Here's the problem. His statement has been broadly critiqued by many other philosophers, religious and irreligious philosophers, because of his assertion of the premise that if evil seems pointless to me, then it must be pointless. Therefore, it is possible, if not probable, that if God is great and transcendent enough to be mad at for not stopping evil and suffering in the world, then he could be then great and transcendent enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't see, but we cannot have it both ways. There's a God who's great enough to stop this, 
And so we accuse God. But at the same time, he's not great enough to have reasons that our finite man's minds cannot grasp. We cannot have it both ways. Is he great and transcendent or is he not? If we claim that he's great and transcendent, then there may just well be reasons that we don't understand for the things that take place before us, around us. See, so long as it's even possible that God has some good reason for doing things the way he has, it's actually impossible to show that he is unjust, impotent, and unloving. Before the first book of the Bible is even done, there's a story about a young man named Joseph, Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat, the coat of many colors, you know? And he's got this coat, and he's the favorite of his dad. His brothers hate him for it. Hate him so much they want to kill him. They decide that they will. They throw him in a pit. They figure out, how are we going to do this? And just as they're deciding how they're going to kill their brother, slave traders come on through on their way to Egypt. And one of the brothers has this idea. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him. He'll be as good as dead, plus we'll make some money. And that's what they do. So, therefore, Joseph is now headed off to Egypt to a life of slavery. But in the midst of serving as a slave in Egypt, he's accused of a crime that he didn't commit, and then he gets imprisoned. Years of slavery and then imprisonment. Like, think about it with me. Surely many seemingly unanswered prayers left Joseph's mouth. Surely many cries for God to help, and yet an apparent lack of answer, nothing from God. To the point where when you follow the story, you see that he rises to second in command in all of Egypt, and the reason is that thousands of lives could be spared, including his families, even those brothers. It's a bit of a gospel story, actually. See, if God hadn't allowed Joseph to suffer, he never could have saved a nation and their neighboring nations. Now, we don't always get to have the perspective that Joseph was able to have, but by Genesis 50, the last chapter of the first book of the Bible, he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good. Stephen Colbert was interviewed a few weeks ago by the Silver Fox, Anderson Cooper. Come on, people, I'm trying to just keep you with me here. All right, thank you. All right. At one point in the interview, uh, Anderson Cooper brought up the fact that when Colbert was a child, his father and brothers were killed in a plane crash. So Cooper said to him, you told an interviewer that you have learned to, in your words, love the thing that I most wish had not happened. You went on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts? Then Cooper's voice cracked visibly choked up and confused, confused as he asked Colbert, do you really believe that? After a long pause, Colbert responded, yes, it's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escape from that. I didn't learn that I was grateful for the thing I most wish didn't happen. It's that I realized it. If you are grateful for your life, which is a positive thing to do, then you have to be grateful for all of it, he said. And he went on, and what do you get from loss? You get awareness of others' loss, 
other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being if it's true that all humans suffer. And so at a young age, I suffered something so that by the time I was in serious relationships in my life with friends or with my wife or with my children, is that I had some understanding that everybody is suffering and however imperfectly acknowledge their suffering and to connect with them and to love them in a deep way that not only accepts that all of us suffer, but also then makes you grateful that you have suffered so that you can know that about other people. And that's what I mean. It's about the fullness of your humanity. Colbert, clearly my favorite late night show host, went on to say, what's the point of being here and being human if you can't be the most human that you can be? I want to be the most human I can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things I most wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. And then he leaned in and said, in my tradition... That's the great sacrifice of Christ. God does it too. That you're really not alone. God does it too. And then Cooper quickly changed the subject. (laughs) There's actually something uh, in social psychology called the boomerang effect. In attempting to show, like in this case, that suffering is evidence against an all-loving, all-powerful God, actually this premise has constantly faced the boomerang effect, which is that over and over again, it's had the opposite effect. Meaning that evil, the existence of evil and suffering in the world have actually been the cause for many, 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 many people to turn to God and acknowledge his power and his love. Do you know what day in New York City the churches were filled like they've never been before? The Sunday after 9-11. See, like Colbert, many of us can testify to the fact that the sufferings we have faced have actually been gifts, gifts we wouldn't wish on anyone or choose, but gifts in the sense that we see what they accomplish in our lives. They build in compassion and empathy, strengthen our faith, remind us of our need for God, and they even create a necessary and right longing for the new heavens and the new earth that will come when Christ returns. Very, very slowly over the years, I think I've become a better pastor. But, but really, I can only trace it to one reason. Suffering. Personal suffering. The more I suffer, I think the better a pastor I become because I I just realized, man, the best thing I've got right here is to sit in this with you. There's a popular phrase in leadership, maybe you've heard it, leading with a limp. What's that all about? It refers to those failings and flaws that humanize leaders and even makes them desirable to follow. See, this all flies in the face of the premise that there could be no good reason for suffering. We all inherently know that it's suffering more than anything else that builds character and courage and deep love and connection with others. 
And these scenarios are all coming about because Jesus didn't come. But then Jesus does come. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days by the time Jesus arrives. And when Martha and then Mary each see Jesus, the first thing out of their mouths is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha says it in verse 21. Mary says it in verse 32. They both say the same thing to Jesus because they'd probably said the same thing over and over again to themselves and to each other. Their plan was that Jesus would show up while Lazarus was still alive and heal him but he didn't, and it hurt. It crushed them. And Jesus responded to Martha and said, your brother will rise again. And in verse 24, Martha responds, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? Many first century Jews believed that there would be a resurrection of the dead of, of the people of God. But in her mind, I think that feel that in that moment when Jesus says that to her, that feels so distant, if not cold. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I know. But, but right now. <laughs> See, we're much more like children than philosophers, you and I. Our pain's real and urgent. But Christianity, thank you, Jesus, doesn't just offer distant hope. It offers distant hope, yes. But it doesn't just offer distant hope, it offers present hope as well. See, what Jesus wanted them to see was that their greatest need wasn't to have their brother back. Their greatest need was Jesus. Jesus looked Martha in the eye and said, I am the resurrection and the life. See, our hope isn't in an event, it's in a person, and that person is Jesus. Nothing can stop Jesus from giving life because he doesn't just have life, he is life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What these sisters and you and me need more than anything is not less suffering, it's more Jesus. But after his exchange with Martha, Mary comes to Jesus, and with Mary come all of these mourning folks. All of those who are mourning the death of Lazarus, they all come out as well, and Jesus witnesses them all weeping. And it's fascinating. He doesn't say, stop it, stop it, stop it. Don't, don't waste your tears. It's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. He doesn't do that. Verse 35, 33 to 35 tells us that Jesus, when he sees them mourning, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and that Jesus wept. Before Jesus fixes their problem, which he will, he joins them in their pain. He enters their grief before he cures it. You and I need to take our cue from Jesus here. I, I talked about this last week. We often shy away from uncomfortable situations, right? Somebody's expressing doubts in their life or sorrows, sufferings, and we can get very uncomfortable with that and try, try and change the subject or say, well, you know, Romans 8 says all things work out for the good of those who love them, so let's chin up. 
You know, we need to take our cue from Jesus. He's about to raise Lazarus, but he sees people mourning over death. And before he gets to the answer, he's moved in his spirit and he joins them and he weeps too. We're we're, we're so tempted to avoid pain, our own pain or the pain of others. And Jesus acknowledges the pain and sits in it too. Romans 12 tells us to weep with those who weep, meaning love others enough to enter into their suffering. About six years ago or so, I got a call from my dad, and he was telling me that he had decided he was going to leave my mom. And it came as a a total shock to me. And uh, when I got home a little while later, I sat down at the table, and this man in his early 30s it didn't really matter. I felt like a little child where the foundations had all broken and I began to cry at the table, super embarrassed. I usually save that for right here. (laughs) And my oldest son was like three or four at the time. I was still paying for the therapy. No, that's not true. Like he, I just broke down crying, but I remember what happened next. My wife and my oldest son just both got up from their spots and they just came around me, wrapped their arms around me. They both rested their heads on me and they just stayed. My youngest son was stuck in a high chair, so I'll give him a pass. (laughs) I'll give him a pass. It would have been really hard. Rebecca McLaughlin said, Christians truly following Jesus are deeply attached and covered in tears, their own and those of others, just like their Lord. You see Jesus here? Suffering exists, and Jesus cares. Jesus weeps. See, see, here's the thing, you know, the accusation gets made that Jesus doesn't Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't love us. Here's the thing. Jesus wept. He cares. This text shows us that he cares. And in this space between Lazarus' death and Jesus calling him out of the tomb is the space in which Mary and Martha see Jesus for who he really is, their very life. Now let's see Jesus turn death into resurrection. In verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I think most of you know this, but men smell at the best of times, right? Uh, I love the King James version of this. What, what Martha said, according to the King James version, is that he stinketh, Lord. <laughs> Lord, he stinketh. So let's play a little game. If a man doesn't bathe for a day, what happens? He stinketh, okay? If a man doesn't get out of bed for four days, he stinketh. If a man's been dead in a tomb for four days, oh, Yes, he stinketh. But Jesus is about to raise Lazarus, and Martha's like, 
he's dead, he's really going to smell. Like they have no idea at all what is about to happen. Verse 41 says, so they take away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here we see why Jesus didn't come right away or heal Lazarus from afar, that the crowd of onlookers, even this family, could truly believe in Jesus. Not only has Jesus shown his overwhelming love for us, but he also proves his power over the greatest of all evil and suffering, death. So therefore, neither claim that God isn't loving enough or powerful enough holds up. Neither claim stands according to this text. See, what I want you to see is that what Jesus does for Lazarus proves that he has the power to keep his promise. Jesus promises that those who believe in him, though they die physically, they will live eternally with him. Those who hope in Jesus have great future hope. But if I can climb inside your brains right now, some of you, I would wager a guess, are thinking right about now, yeah, but... You're probably still troubled thinking no eternal pleasure, no future hope could make up for the evil and suffering that's taken place. Uh, I heard a story years ago about a man who went to bed, had a dream, and in that dream, his, um, his wife and children were brutally murdered. And then he woke up in the morning and he quickly realized Oh, it was a nightmare. But even still, he went downstairs, and when he saw his wife and children, he hugged them a little tighter. And he even loved them more deeply. Why? Because of the nightmare. Because of the nightmare. Sometimes it's been said, why couldn't the garden just... like? Couldn't God have made it so that there never would have been a fall and the perfection of the garden never would have left? And yes, yes, sure, sure. But here's what we see is that the, the pleasure of eternity to come will be greater than had the nightmare never occurred. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, wrote it this way, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. 
for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Get a little philosophical again. Just because we can't conceive of how that might be possible doesn't mean that it isn't possible. At the very end of the Bible, there's a book called Revelation. And in chapter 21, that's precisely what it promises. John, the apostle, sees a vision of what is to come, and it's a new heavens, a new earth, descending on this present heaven, present earth, where everything will be set right. Everything will be set so right that we will see the face of Jesus, that, that, that this new world will be lit with the shining of Christ, that, that we will commune with God and there will be no more tears, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more death, and it will be so blissful because he's brought us, partially and even more deeply, because he's brought us through the nightmare. But Jesus doesn't just feel sorry for us in our pain. He takes that agony on himself. That's, that's the heart of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Christianity stands alone in its claim that God became human in Jesus and therefore deeply knows despair, rejection, poverty, loneliness, loss, injustice, torture, on the cross, he went beyond the worst of all human suffering, experiencing cosmic rejection and cosmic suffering and pain exceeding what we could even imagine. In his death on the cross, God suffered in love, identifying with the abandoned and brokenhearted. Why? So the greatest rescue mission in human history could unfold. Jesus paying the penalty for your sins and mine so that one day all suffering and evil and death can be vanquished once and for all. And the beauty of this passage is that death didn't get the last word. It usually feels like death gets the last word. Death happens, hopelessness ensues. No, Jesus has spoken. The sickness didn't end in death, but in resurrection. So in this case, Jesus, not death, gets the final word. And his word is this. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are and it's with fear and trepidation that I, that, that I talk about such a big topic, such a big doubt. Um, and yet, Lord, it's with deep trust. We, we open your word and, and look at what it says and recognize we're not trying to bring all the answers in 40 minutes, but Lord, we are trying to speak to your goodness and your power to look afresh at the fact that you love like no one has ever loved and that there is a God, but not a distant, hardened, abstract, uncaring God, but a suffering God. You know what it's like, and you know what it's like because in taking on the suffering humanity, Jesus, you vanquished evil and suffering and death forever. 
We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.